Thanks uh, for the introduction, John. I, I, I don't, we didn't actually need that much encouragement to, to come here to Campbelltown. It's uh, a part of the Scotland that I love absolutely dearly. Uh, I came here many, many times as a, uh, as a child. I always used to arrive by ferry, uh, so I thought it would be a nice idea if you could do that again for, for new generations. And I'm great to see that Campbelltown is now a ferry port. In the years uh, uh, after that, uh, I was always struck, I think it's somewhere about Erskine, there's a sign which says Campbelltown, 127 miles. <laughs> I, I suppose for, for folk who are coming on, uh, on holiday, that must in itself seem a wee bit forbidding <laughs> to have that sign. But for folk who are travelling back and forward, it was, oh, I know, 127 miles. Uh, so therefore, I, I thought it would be a good idea if we start with an announcement, which I'm sure will be widely welcomed in this community. Uh, when, I, when I came here as a... As a child in the 1960s, I was a very young child, you understand, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, they, uh, I absolutely remember uh, there was a campaign uh, to trunk the A83. That is to say, to make it the responsibility of, of central government, uh, because it is a very, very long road, even from Kennecraig, uh, and therefore a very great burden for any local authority to have that length of road. Uh, so in trying to check whether my memory was correct, I got my, my staff to do a bit of research. And actually, the only thing I was wrong about was the, that campaign is much more long-standing than even the 1960s. In fact, as far back as 1945, the Member of Parliament for Argyle, who was a Conservative, it was a very long time ago, <laughs> told the House of Commons that the United Kingdom government, quote, should include the road from Loch Gilphead to Campbelltown as one of its main trunk roads, it's one of the most important roads in the Western Highlands. Uh, and, of course, that gentleman was absolutely correct. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's taken six to eight years uh, through successive Conservative and Labour governments uh, at Westminster, and even eight years with the Liberal Democrats got a look in at Holyrood. Uh, but today, it's my great pleasure, as First Minister of Scotland, to confirm that the 83 from Kennecraig will be designated as a trunk road by this SNP government. And, therefore... I should say, it wouldn't actually change the amount of miles. <laughs> but it'll make the, the last the, uh, 30 miles or so maybe that bit easier. Because the point about trunking is, of course, to have it both maintained and enhanced. Uh, and that will be the objective. So within the next year, because as a, a legal process it has to be gone through, a statutory pro process, uh, then uh, the 83 will indeed be a, a trunk road. Uh, yesterday I opened part of an initiative which is transforming the, the waterfront right here in the heart of Campbelltown. The new park terrace will provide 32 affordable homes uh, for rent. I also went to the, the site of the, the Eager factory. Uh, it closed some, what, 10 years ago now. And that's now been developed by M&K McLeod, who also built the park terrace housing, and now includes units for new businesses starting up in Campbelltown. And all of these sites are now occupied, all six of them. And while I was there, I launched an initiative to encourage graduate recruitment as part of this week's events taking place around Scotland, which is called Make Young People Your Business, uh, which is part of the, the drive uh, against youth unemployment. Uh, Angela Constance, where are you, Angela? You have before you, ladies and gentlemen, the only minister in the entire continent of Europe who has a specific responsibility for youth uh, employment. And when Angela was uh, appointed some 18 months ago, 
Youth unemployment in Scotland had reached 115,000, a scandalously high level. It's now 78,000, still a very, very high level indeed, but a very significant reduction over the last 18 months. Uh, and this week, right across Scotland, that uh, campaign, that crusade against unemployment uh, continues. It's a crusade that uh, covers all parts of the country. Uh, in fact, it's particularly important in rural areas. Uh, another point of this visit which is worth mentioning, <coughs> the 12 years ago it was, the Old Jaeger factory closed. It was a huge blow to this community. So it is fantastic to see new businesses now opening in the same site. And together with the success of Macrahanish Wind Towers, the establishment of the new ferry service, the regeneration of the town centre, I think what it adds up to <coughs> is a sense of renewal in Campbelltown and the Mullock entire. <coughs> what I wanted to point out, these things are interconnected. For example, the decision to trunk the 83 has been made possible because Campbelltown is now once again designated as a ferry destination port. That is one of the criteria for trunk roads. So it gets us into a virtuous cycle of renewal. Bringing back the ferry allows a decision to be made to trunk the road and makes the point that this part, this magnificent, this beautiful, this wonderful part of Scotland has to be fully integrated into the transport network covering the country. I was saying last night in, uh, in Campbellton Grammar that if I had to point to two things <clears throat> which allow rural areas to, to have the level of prosperity uh, to which they're entitled, uh, then the two things I would point to is connectivity, the ability to connect with the rest of the country, uh, both in terms of businesses being able to operate from, from rural areas, but also in terms of people being able to visit these rural areas. Uh, so connectivity and homes, housing, the two absolutely crucial things, particularly housing for local people, uh, because quite obviously in many rural parts of Scotland, the price level of available housing can be outbid in terms of the resources of, uh, of the local community. Uh, and therefore, the housing development and the connectivity are absolutely critical uh, in ensuring the continued success of this community in terms of economic renewal and recovery. That renewal, quite rightly, as John said, is a partnership with the community, with the council, with the government. That's how it should be done. Uh, the ministers uh, you see before you uh, over the last couple of days, uh, I think, have carried out a total of 31 engagements, uh, and everywhere we've been struck by the, the strength and vitality of the local community. Now, in all of these engagements, uh, the purpose of the cabinets coming round Scotland uh, and the full array of ministers is to, to listen, is to hear what the community says and respond to the questions. Uh, there's another uh, great argument for, uh, for having the whole Cabinet here. When we come to question time, if there's challenging, difficult questions, uh, then of course I'll refer them quite properly to my Cabinet colleagues. If they're easy questions, one that you can kick out the park, then of course I'll assume responsibility personally uh, and give the appropriate answers. And this summer, We've taken the Cabinet north to Shetland, south to the borders, west here to Campbelltown, uh, and next week to Fraserburgh in the northeast of Scotland. We do that for a very, very simple reason. It's a demonstration that this is a Cabinet, this is a government, not just for Edinburgh, but for all of Scotland. A critical thing in terms of the communication with people across the country. What we do when we bring the Cabinet, we have these... I think significant local announcements and events, and that's right and proper. 
but also the Cabinet meeting we held today uh, is a full-scale Cabinet meeting. We discussed, for example, the situation in Syria at the Cabinet meeting today, and that is right and proper. These are full-scale Cabinet meetings. They have the normal discussions that take place cooperate, and rightly we discussed the helicopter tragedy uh, in the North East of Scotland at the Cabinet meeting today. Uh, and also, as we go round, I make the, take the opportunity uh, to talk about the biggest decision that Scotland is going to be able to make for some 300 years, that decision in the independence referendum next year. I've been reflecting on the sort of democracy, the sort of nation that we want Scotland to be after independence. And one of the points I've been making around the, the public meetings that have been held at Land from Bread for Scotland is to take the point that the thing that we are trying to change through an independent Scotland is to change fundamentally the political and economic union that ties us to Westminster. You know, I'm uh, 58 years old, ladies and gentlemen. I can see you all looking fair astonished and saying, surely not. <laughs> but I am. I'm 58 years old, and for two-thirds of my entire life, Scotland has been ruled by governments that it did not elect. Uh, that, in my mind, is simply no longer democratically acceptable. And it's not just democratically unacceptable as some sort of theory, it's socially and economically unacceptable. For example, and a very pertinent point to make right now, uh, an independent Scotland would never, ever have participated in the illegal invasion of Iraq. An independent Scotland would never, ever introduce a measure of any government of any conceivable political hue elected in Scotland would never introduce something as socially regressive as the bedroom tax. So the prime, the, the, the absolute imperative uh, of Scottish independence is to give this country, this nation of ours, the basic democratic right of being able to choose the government and therefore choose the direction of policy that that government uh, pursues the basic right of self-determination and democratic accountability. But, you know, there's lots of things that need to be changed, but there's some things and some associations that won't change across these islands after Scotland is independent. The social union, for example. By the social union, I mean the, the ties of friendship uh, which connect the people of these islands. That will endure regardless of the choices of governments, indeed regardless of governments. Uh, other unions, European Union, the Defence Union, the Currency Union, the Union of the Crowns, uh, which predates the political union by 100 years, uh, are ones that the SNP would choose to maintain. Chains, certainly, improve, absolutely, but basically maintain. Now, I should say at this point, it's entirely appropriate <coughs> for other parties to put forward different choices for the people of Scotland. That's how it should be. But the real point about independence, the absolute point of independence, is that the people of Scotland would be able to make these choices. Only with independence can we be the sort of country that we want to be. Now, I, the SNP's view the, that would use the uh, powers of independence to make sure that these other associations, these unions, would work more appropriately. Uh, keeping the pound, the currency union, would keep the pound sterling but will gain powers over taxation, over borrowing, over welfare, economic regulation, energy markets, the very lifeblood of a modern economy. In our view, in the SNP's view, we should remain within the European Union, but with our own representatives in the Council of Ministers and without the obsessive negativity of London's relationship with the rest of Europe. In our view, the SNP's view, we should maintain our membership 
of the NATO Defence Union, basically because that's what our friends and neighbours in Denmark and Norway and the United States of America would want. For Scotland, it has an important position in the North Atlantic. After all, NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, and then where we can play our part in maintaining a collective security. But in that alliance, we should participate without being a nuclear power. Uh, 25 out of the 28 members of NATO do not possess nuclear weapons. And there isn't a single example in the entire world uh, of uh, one country having all its nuclear weapons stationed within the borders of another country. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there are two unions I want to discuss this afternoon. I want to talk about the Union of the Crowns uh, and the Social Union. The Social Union, as I said, is something which unites all of the people of these islands. And we are bound to the other nations in these islands by ties of history, of culture, of language. And these ties have endured for thousands of years, since Kintyre <clears throat> was part of the, the Scots-Irish Kingdom of Dalriada. They do not depend on any government. After independence, they will continue and flourish. People will still change jobs. They will move to Dundee, Dublin, from Manchester to Glasgow. We'll still watch the X-Factors or EastEnders, if that's what we want to do. And people in England will still cheer Andy Murray. People in Scotland will still support the Lions at rugby. Except, of course, there'll be the British, Scottish and Irish Lions. Now, that's the reality of the social union. And yet, the Secretary of State for Scotland suggested last month that the rest of the UK would establish border posts if Scotland became independent. It is, ladies and gentlemen, a totally absurd notion, but it's part of a pattern of a campaign that the no campaign call themselves. Their self-description of themselves is project fear. And I just want you to think about that for a second. <clears throat> We're dealing here with a group of people who themselves, to a Sunday Herald journalist, describe their campaign as project fear. Now, you can imagine the context in which they made that description, you know. We're going to scare the pants off the Scottish people. We are project fear, this kind of boastful idea that they could scare people in Scotland into a no vote. And yet, if you look at the sort of unravelling of that idea, uh, then uh, perhaps the no campaign may well find soon that it require more substance. For example, they argued, if you remember, that the UK's AAA status was crucial to Scotland's economic prospects. And then the UK, of course, lost its AAA status. Uh, the Ministry of Defence just last month mused that they would annex Faslane if Scots voted for independence. And now that scare story lasted for two hours, 30 minutes, uh, before Downing Street rushed out a denial to the Ministry of Defence. And then they claimed, if you remember, just a few weeks back, that mobile phone charges would go up in an independent Scotland. Unfortunately, they made the claim on the very day, the very day <clears throat> that the European Commission was abolishing roaming charges uh, across the entire European continent. And then they said that the United Kingdom embassies across the world would no longer promote Scotch whisky. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to Springbank Distillery immediately after this cabinet. And I'm sure when I'm there, I'll see further evidence that the multi-billion pound whisky industry could probably get by without the promotion of the United Kingdom embassies. Incidentally, as we know to our cost, UK embassies actually charge for the receptions to promote Scottish whisky <laughs> at the present moment. It reminds me perhaps of the 
Old lines from Campbellton Loch, I wish you were whisky. Campbellton Loch, I wish you were whisky. How nice it would be if the whisky were free and the embassies full up to the brim. So it's hardly surprising, given that track record in Project Fear, uh, that the Secretary of State for Scotland was conjuring up the notion of border posts at Berwick. Now, what's the reality? Well, the reality, of course, is there's been a common travel area between the Republic of Ireland, the United Kingdom, the Channel Islands, the Isle of Man, since 1923. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is despite the fact that the Channel Islands and Isle of Man aren't even in the European Union. And, of course, the Republic of Ireland is an independent state. I currently sit on an organisation called the British-Irish Council, set up after the Good Friday Agreement. There's three crown dependencies, the Isle of Man, Jersey and Guernsey, three devolved nations uh, and two sovereign states. Do we really think it would be difficult in maintaining that sort of relationship if instead there were two devolved nations and three sovereign states on the British-Irish Council? It's actually an example <coughs> of how structures can devolve to meet new constitutional realities. Uh, I saw another example last week in Hoyk, in the borders, uh, where uh, we uh, uh, helped uh, establish what's called the Borderlands Initiative, uh, where the English local authorities and the borders authorities are coming together uh, to talk about how to boost transport, tourism and business links facilitated by the Scottish Government. Uh, it shows how cooperation across the border can be encouraged and initiated after we had devolution and independence will enable us to do much more as we move the centre of economic gravity in these islands northwards. An independent Scotland, as I said a few moments ago, would retain the monarchy. Her Majesty the Queen will be Queen of Scots, just as she's Queen of 16 other independent nations throughout the Commonwealth. Uh, Scotland was an independent nation for 100 years before the, in the Union of the Crowns, before the Union of Parliament. And it's a phrase, of course, uh, the Union of the Crowns, which has a deep historical resonance in Scotland. But the point I want to make today, just because we're maintaining or propose as the SNP to maintain Her Majesty the Queen as our Head of State, uh, that doesn't mean that nothing changes. The United Kingdom calls itself a constitutional monarchy, a constitutional monarchy. But in the entire Commonwealth, even including the countries which took their parliamentary system from the United Kingdom, this nation... The UK is the only country without a written constitution or a constitutional act. We're actually the only country in the European Union which doesn't have a written constitution. Practically every self-respecting democracy across this planet in the world has a, a constitution. Uh, and I would submit today here in Campbelltown that that's a, a democratic deficit uh, that an independent Scotland can rectify. Now, our timetable for independence between the referendum of September 2014 and the independence declaration in March 2016, uh, the current government, the devolved parliament, will set out a constitutional platform for the independent nation, putting in place all the, the legal requirements, the necessities for Scotland to become independent. Legislation will be in place which transfers sovereignty from Westminster Holyrood, will have agreed the transitional arrangements with the UK government, and Scottish independence will have been accepted by the international community. So what will it be that's in place over that time period, over that 18 months? Well, there will be the Scottish Parliament elected by proportional representation. There will be the separation between Parliament and the judiciary, as now uh, exemplified by the presence here of the, uh, the Lord Advocate, the Chief Law Officer uh, of Scotland. The Lord Advocate comes and attends the, the Cabinet at his wish and request to advise the government, uh, but the judiciary and the 
the law of Scotland is separated from the, the government uh, of Scotland, from the politics, from the legal system. Uh, we will be bound, as we are now, by the European Convention of Human Rights, but what will happen and what will change is the Scottish Parliament will take responsibility uh, for all of Scotland's public spending, rather than the 60% of it we have responsibility for just now, and for all of Scotland's taxation base, as opposed to the 15% we've got control of at the present moment. But beyond these legal steps and the other policy areas currently UK responsibilities under the control of the UK Government, nothing will change significantly until after independence. And the first elections to an independent parliament in the spring of 2016, that will be the point of decision where people decide which government they want to elect and therefore the direction of policy they wish to see. But in our submission, that's the SNP's submission, once Scotland is independent, one of the first and most exciting tasks will be to draft and approve a written constitution. And I think it is important, it is significant that we can start the debate now on what that constitution should include. Modern countries use constitutions to articulate their values, to define who they are as societies. They don't just protect human rights, essential though that is, they also enhance liberties and define responsibilities of citizens. Scotland's constitution, in my submission, should do the same. We should make it clear that we are citizens, uphold the values, rights, responsibilities of the people of the community of the realm of Scotland. And by doing so, in that constitution, we can signpost <clears throat> the real difference that independence can make to people's lives. For example, uh, this government... Uh, uh, restored something which has been a huge tradition in Scottish society since time immemorial, uh, and that is the right of free education. It was the hallmark. You know, when I was, a, 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 when I was coming to Macrahanish as a, as a boy and I was a, a lad at school in Livgo, I kind of stumbled across the fact that uh, Scotland seemed to have invented lots of things. You know, penicillin, tarmacadam, telephone, television, beta blockers, some fax machines. And it was very interesting. I was quite interested in the fact that Scott seemed to have invented all this stuff. Nobody actually told me why we invented these things. Why did Scotland manage to invent all these extraordinary inventions, so much so that one American historian, not a Scot, an American historian said that uh, uh, Scotland had invented the modern world. Well, the reason that Scotland invented these things is not just that we're naturally more inventive than other people. More significantly, it's the most important Scottish invention of all, and that was universal free education at primary level initially. In the Middle Ages, the early modern period, Scotland was the first country on earth to make it compulsory for people to be educated. And because people in Scotland were educated, they had the platform which allowed them more than any other society on earth to mobilize the population and to bring about the great engineers and inventors who invented the modern world, according to the American historian. So free education has been a, a part of Scottish society for many, many centuries. This government reintroduced free education for higher education at college and university level. It strikes me as that is the sort of, of liberating principle that could be enshrined in a Scottish constitution. We can recognise uh, Scotland's history in the constitution. We can impose safeguards in terms of current policy on uh, how the government deploys armed forces. Uh, a number of constitutions throughout the world have a strict process 
by which the government decides to engage in international conflict. We could have done with that 10 years ago, could we not, in terms of the illegal invasion of Iraq. A constitution in an independent Scotland could ban Scotland from hosting nuclear weapons, which I think would uphold the desires of the citizens of this country. It would set out our wish to be a responsible international citizen. There are 193 countries currently, ladies and gentlemen, in the United Nations. Fewer than 10 of them possess nuclear weapons. I think this country should be one of the 183 without nuclear weapons, as opposed to the 10 with them. An independent Scotland's constitution could guarantee the status and rights of local government. That happens in Germany, Denmark and Sweden. But these uh, proposals, these proposals I've mentioned, are just the ideas of the SNP. The point, ladies and gentlemen, is that no single party or individual has a monopoly of ideas. And the process of bringing about a written constitution for independent Scotland, all parties, all individuals, should be encouraged to contribute to drawing up such a constitution. Currently in Ireland, a, a society recovering from the financial shock, citizen participation is a crucial part of the current convention on the Irish Constitution. In Scotland, we have the opportunity to learn from what others are doing uh, and to take the best examples from across the world. The, the process of drawing up such a constitution will energise and inspire people. It will provide us uh, a chance to reflect on the sort of democracy and society we want to live in. In all of this, this ascribes to one fundamental principle. As a principle as old as Scottish history itself, in Scotland, the people of the country are sovereign. The people are sovereign. It's not the government, not the parliament, not even Her Majesty the Queen. The Scottish constitutional principle is that the people of Scotland hold the sovereignty which is held in trust by the government and parliament. It's a simple statement, but it's one which encapsulates Scottish tradition for centuries. It was first encapsulated expressed in the Declaration of Abroth in 1320. It was reaffirmed in 1989 in the claim of right for Scotland. It was most recently restated by the Scottish Parliament just a, a year ago. And it stands in sharp contrast to the constitutional tradition or fiction in the UK that the Westminster Parliament claims unlimited sovereignty. But then I would submit that the vigour of the constitutional debate that we're having in Scotland stands in sharp contrast to the tired disputes we see at Westminster. In the UK Parliament, over the last couple of years, there's been a total failure to reform the House of Lords, despite the, the claims that were made that this was about to be done. Uh, there's to be no changes of the voting system for the House of Commons, first past the post is there uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, there's no serious attempt to remedy the centralisation of the UK government and the UK economy, which sees uh, London and the southeast of England prosper at the expense of other parts of England and other parts of these islands. And therefore, independence offers the opportunity for Scotland to move away from an outdated, profoundly undemocratic Westminster system. Uh, one, remember, which for two-thirds of my entire life has given Scotland governments that we didn't vote for. We move or have the opportunity of moving instead to a transparent, democratic, effective system of government, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people of Scotland. I want to close, ladies and gentlemen, by giving a practical example of how we're already trying to engage in a process of democratic renewal in Scotland. 
I mentioned earlier these public discussions were an important demonstration of the principle that this is a government for all of Scotland, not for just for Edinburgh. Campbelltown, like many parts of rural Scotland, is, a, is blessed with a, a wealth of natural resources. The wind, waves, tides, which are the source of our renewable energy potential, the farmland, the water, which sustains the food and whisky industries, the landscape, which attracts visitors uh, from across the world. And just as these resources and assets are dispersed across Scotland, so prosperity and decision-making and power should also be dispersed and shared across the country. Uh, earlier this summer in Shetland, uh, I made clear the, the government's belief in more localised decision-making. Our actions will, will underline that belief. Uh, the government has already consulted on a community empowerment renewable. The purchase of Makrahanish Air Base uh, by the local community is an example of how local communities can, can run and improve facilities which otherwise may have fallen into disuse. We aim to make it easier, much easier, for communities to buy land and take over assets. And following on the declaration of local decision-making made in Shetland and the Borderlands initiatives which we launched in Hoyk, in Campbellton I want to give a further example of a demonstration of how this government works for all parts of Scotland. In the last election campaign of Scotland, we promised to establish a rural parliament for Scotland. Uh, and I can confirm today that the, the government will be enable the first meeting of that body to take place within the next year. Now, what does a, a rural parliament do? Well, we can look again at good international practice and examples. And we can uh, match and, and, and look at the examples in Sweden and Ireland's Hungary, where they have a rural parliament that provides a forum to ensure that the needs of rural and remote communities are given the importance that they deserve. It's a, a further example of how we can ensure that democracy in this country works for the communities across the whole of the country. Ladies and gentlemen, independence is about empowering people and institutions and communities. It offers an opportunity to renew democracy at all levels in Scotland. We can encourage local communities to gain more autonomy, more self-reliance. We can guarantee the status and rights of local government. We can draft a, a constitution for the people, uh, which will affirm the most treasured values of our new nation. And together with democratic renewal at home, we can be a confident and responsible international citizen, cooperating with friends and allies across these islands and across the world. One of the advantages of the independence debate over the next year is it should give each and every one of us the opportunity to reflect on the sort of Scotland we wish to see or the Scotland that we seek. This government wants the debate to take place across the whole of the country. We want to listen to the views expressed across the whole of the country. And therefore, ladies and gentlemen, I look forward enormously to hearing what you and Campbelltown have got to say this afternoon.